I want you to imagine this. There are probably about 100, 120 of us here this morning. What if 72 of us right now stood up and we paired up and we left church to see where the Lord took us in the neighborhood? Edgewater has about 96 square blocks. So if there were 36 pairs of us, that would be about two and a half blocks per pair. If there are 36 pairs of us, we would divide the roughly 52,000 people of Edgewater into about 1,600 people per pair. Can you imagine something like that happening? A missional movement that would move out of our church to the surrounding blocks in such a way that those pairs would be prayerfully seeing where the Lord led them and who the Lord led them to. Would we ever try anything like that? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus actually sends 72 of his disciples out in a very similar fashion. And in verses 1 through 12, we see what's involved with these things, with this thing, this, this movement. He calls these 72 and he appoints them and sends them out, 36 pairs. And he, the, the elements that are involved in their going, first of all, are earnest prayer. Earnest prayer, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Even though that's a pretty amazing thing, 72 disciples standing there waiting to go out, he says, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for more workers. That's how plentiful the harvest is. He also says, you're going to be like lambs among wolves. This is going to be a dangerous endeavor. Perhaps made more dangerous or tenuous because he also said, don't take anything with you. Just go out and see what I do. Part of the reason for them not taking anything with them was because they were supposed to gauge how the Lord was providentially moving them into these different villages. By the way, that, that was the mission, to each of you go into a different village, 36 villages, and they were villages that Jesus was then going to follow them into. They were preparing the way for him. And they were going to be testing the spiritual waters of those villages, the spiritual temperature of those villages, their openness to the gospel of the kingdom of God by seeing if the Lord would direct them to a certain house in each of those certain villages where they would go into that house and they would say, peace be upon this house. If that village was open to the gospel of the kingdom of God, they would respond by saying, come in. Jesus referred to the person that would welcome them as a son of peace. That son of peace would invite them to stay there, to eat with them. And as they stayed there and ate with them in this home, this duo of disciples would heal the sick and cast out demons as they preached the gospel of the kingdom in that village, preparing the way for Jesus to later come. However, if they said, peace be upon this house, and they ran them out of the village, they were to shake the dust of their sandals because judgment was going to come upon that town. As Luke 10, 16 says, 
The one who hears you hears me. This is Jesus speaking. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, maybe that suggestion that we go out into the two and a half block assignments of Edgewater kind of takes your breath away. Maybe that gets you a little nervous. Maybe you agree with Jared's prayer saying, yes, Lord, uh, help us to share the gospel. But when it comes to putting your name down on a list and saying, Jesus is sending me, whoo, some heart palpitations. So why these 72 go? Why did they go? It's because Jesus was the one who appointed them. He was the one who appointed them, and because of that, they were captivated by him. Captivated by him, and joyfully went. Well, after they were gone for a little while, they came back, and the 72 were full of rejoicing, and Jesus rejoiced too. So remember, he was planning to follow up their ministry in these villages by going himself. And so a little while later, Jesus entered a Jewish village. Will he find a son of peace there? Will he be rejected or received? Will they listen to him or will they stop up their ears? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you, the God of the universe, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, to bless us this morning with the work of your spirit in us. Give us ears to hear. May we not stop up our ears, harden our hearts as our forefathers did in the desert. But may we hear from you this morning to joyfully obey. Amen. So this morning, or actually not this morning, this is my last morning. This is our family's last morning here at Edgewater for three months. I am going on sabbatical. Um, Bill went last summer for three months, and the church has graciously given me that gift this summer. Uh, this Wednesday, Lord willing, if everything can get done Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday will be my first day officially on sabbatical, and I'll return to pastoral duties here at Edgewater on August 24th. And then, there you go, Nawana. That's why I planned it that way. <laughs> You may ask the question, rightly so, what is sabbatical? Well, sabbatical is an extended period of time for rest, renewal, and I would also add to that revival. It's a gift from God for those purposes, not just for pastors, but in this case for one of your pastors. And it's rooted in the gift that God has given to all of humanity in the Sabbath. Rooted all the way back to the creation account, God creates the world in six days, and then he says, it's all good. I'm going to rest in the goodness. Sabbatical is also a gift from you, the church, to me and to my family. We're very thankful for it. I started in pastoral ministry here August 1st of 2008, so it's been 13 years come this August 1st, and um, this last year has been a unique one that all of you know of, and there have been some unique things that a few of you know of that um, make me especially grateful. 
to be able to be rest, to be able to engage rest and renewal during this time. But I'll also tell you this, it's a gift I've never been given before. And sometimes when you get a gift, it's shiny and new, but you're looking for the instructions because you're not exactly sure what it's going to be like until you're actually using it. And I'm sure that's going to be the case. Uh, So we ask for your prayers. But as I knew I was going to be preaching this morning, I was asking the Lord. I wasn't going to be in Zechariah where Bill's been. And if you're like me, you've been very blessed by this sermon series from Bill. Um, But I was considering what could I share with you this morning? And at the same time, asking the Lord, Lord, how, how can you help me, excuse me, understand sabbatical a little bit more so that I can kind of wrap my head around it a little bit, maybe have like a fixed point of um, restful light where I can kind of say, yeah, that's, that's thematic that, that the Lord wants to do in my life and in my family. And that was a struggle for a few weeks. I came upon Hebrews chapter 3, and if you know anything about Hebrews, the, the people that were receiving that letter were under pressure, 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 religious pressure and um, pressure from society, all, all sorts of pressure, and they were seeking, they were needing rest. And so the author of Hebrews lays out the beautiful reality of who Christ is, and in the beginning of chapter 3, he just says this, listen, consider Jesus. You need rest? Consider Jesus. Which then made me think a little bit more about, I don't want to do like a comprehensive sermon on the book of Hebrews this morning necessarily. And the Lord actually partially through one of you brought me to the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. It's on page 869 in the Bibles in front of you if you would like to turn there to the very end of chapter 10. And Jesus' answer to me in terms of thinking through sabbatical and also what to share with you is just this simple phrase that you'll see in the story. Choose the good portion. Choose the good portion. The good portion being Jesus. So the 72 had returned. They had rejoiced. Jesus had rejoiced. And then we return to Jesus entering this village. It's the village of Bethany. And he comes to the home of two sisters. And who welcomes him? But Martha. Lo and behold, not a son of peace, but a daughter of peace. She welcomes Jesus into the home. Likely this home had had a dynamic duo of disciples there earlier. And they told Jesus, you got to return to Bethany. There are these two sisters and they are hungry for the kingdom. And so Jesus returns. It does make you wonder, extra biblically, if one of them had been healed. Or if one of them had had demons. And had them cast out. Was there some, was there something that happened that maybe we'll find out in eternity that happened in their home that brought them to a place of truly welcoming Jesus when he arrived? Mary also welcomed Jesus into their home. She was kind of the second sister. Martha was in charge of the place. But what you're going to see here as we read through this short story, starting in verse 38, is two different responses to Jesus that organize the sermon this morning. Duty and delight. Duty and delight. Look at chapter 10, verse 38 with me. 
Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Perhaps this story fits right into your life. Do you do Saturday morning cleaning at your house? Where there's the debate, who gets which jobs? Can I get an amen from the sheds over here? (laughs) Who does which jobs? Who does which jobs well? And if a job isn't done well by a certain person or they're kind of just like sloughing off a little bit, somebody else might be quick to say, Well, not Lord, but dad, mom, so-and-so, hello. You may see this very easily in your life, and, and I see it in mine too. A readiness to find other people's lack of pitching in, lack of pulling their weight you just wonder, why aren't we all in this together? Why am I the only one working so hard? Well, this is happening here in Martha and Mary's house. And we see here that in verse 40, Luke says clearly, Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted with much serving. Let me, let me toss out a few dangers of duty. Remember, we're thinking about duty and delight this morning. A few dangers of duty. The first one being dangerously distracted. What is her, what is her uh, posture towards Jesus? She's seeking to serve him, yes. But she's seeking to serve him over truly receiving him. She was obviously not able to fully listen to Jesus because she was distracted by many things. She was was trying to get the bread ready. She was trying to get the lamb ready. She was probably vacuuming. She was doing all sorts of things to get this place ready. Jesus and his disciples were coming. And apparently not everything was ready by the time they arrived, maybe a little bit early. And so they, come, come, come in, come in, come in. We're receiving you, yes. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you here. I just have a few things i got to finish up. Where are you going, Mary? She always does this. She always does this. I'm the one that has to keep house. I'm the one that has to make dinner. I run this house, but it would sure be nice to have some help. Martha was dangerously distracted by duty. This is what I have to do. Did anybody else tell her that she had to do this? No. Um, When Jesus mentioned sons of peace, 
To the 72, he did say that when you go, they will receive you. Okay? So nothing wrong with receiving, but there was something that elevated this reception to a higher level than Jesus really intended. What was that something? Well, probably in Martha's pride, she set up certain standards for her house, certain standards for her hospitality, and Jesus is coming? White glove treatment all around. Martha was dangerously distracted, which then turns into being dangerously demanding. She comes up to Jesus, Lord, do you not care? All right, so she's supposing on Jesus' heart right here. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. If she's understanding Jesus rightly, she shouldn't necessarily have to ask, do you care or do you realize? Of course he cares, of course he realizes And that's the reason why he hasn't said anything. But she gets dangerously demanding, prioritizing. Did you catch that? She demanded of Jesus, tell my sister to do this. Dangerously demanding, prioritizing delivery from Jesus over delighting in Jesus. I've got this thing going on, Jesus. Please, give me some help here. She didn't say please. Dangerously distracted, dangerously demanding can lead to dangerous distance. Notice here that Martha is in the same house. She's welcomed Jesus and his guys, but there's a distance here, especially compared to Mary. Jesus is with Mary. Mary is with Jesus. Martha is everywhere else. Close proximity to Jesus, but perhaps far away spiritually. Let's think about ourselves. Why did Martha engage in this distraction, this demanding, and what led to this distance? Duty. She had this list of things, these standards that she had to live up to. This was dangerous, dutiful discipleship. Yes, I want to welcome Jesus, and yes, I want to hear more about the kingdom. But her discipleship was dependent on doing rather than delight. See, think on yourself for a little bit. When our hearts are distracted, they tend to lead to demands. Because we want those distractions taken care of. So, Lord, I now demand. Ultimately, those aren't normally the kinds of prayers that God answers for our own good. He's wanting our hearts, not our distractions. And so we go from distraction to demanding. He does not answer us according to our own wills. 
And then we begin to think, where is he? He's distant. Why isn't he caring for me? Distracted leads to demanding, leads to disappointment, leads to perceived distance. But let me just tell you this. You can kind of combine all those things into another category. And that's not dutiful discipleship, but dutiful disobedience. Look over at chapter 9, verse 57. This is before the 72 are sent out. As they were going along the road, Jesus and his disciples, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but guess what? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say well, farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three guys show up. The first one tells Jesus he would follow him. The second one, Jesus invites him to follow him. And the third one says, I will follow you. But all three of them have excuses. They have excuses. The first one, well, not necessarily excuses. Jesus exposes their inner excuses. Brother, I don't have any place to sleep. And then silence, no reply. The text is silent on that man's reply. Perhaps he was looking for status. I'm a disciple of the healing one. But he wasn't truly valuing Jesus. The third one also says, I'll follow. But let me say farewell to my family. Let me get things in order. He's delaying. It's like, yeah, I want to be part of this. Look at this growing group of people. I want to be there in the middle of it, in the room where it happens. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Because when you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you easily veer away from where you should be and who you should be following. Again, he was delaying delaying, not understanding the beauty, the wonder, the joy of being invited by Jesus to follow him. And in the middle one, Jesus, is, Jesus actually asks him, tells him, follow me. What an invitation. But he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Does not seem to be too much to ask, right? Dad's dead? Not exactly. It doesn't say dad's dead. He's saying, just give me some time until my dad passes. And then in Hebrew culture, the, the time of mourning and kind of putting everything to right after that would be another year. So he was basically saying, I like what you got going here, Jesus, and I would follow you, but 
I've got some other priorities that are higher than you. All three could have been disciples. And you know what? The text doesn't tell us their answers. All of them may have ended up being disciples, even part of the 72. But Jesus is pinpointing here that dutiful discipleship may seem to be of Christ, but it is really of ourselves. We can desire to define the terms of following Christ, setting other things as greater, equal, or as prerequisites to doing him the favor of having our company. For these three guys, their self-conceived duties, their standards had to be dealt with. Their equivocations revealed their blindness to the fact that Christ's call to follow him was an invitation to delight in God. Which brings me back to sabbatical. Sabbatical is again rooted in creation, God resting on the seventh day. And all that he created was good. And a Sabbath day, a Sabbath day is meant to address both duty and delight. It's a deliberate stepping away from duty one day a week, trusting that the six days of work is enough. Trusting that God's setup of time and days and work is wise. And so you deliberately say, the Sabbath is good. And it is also meant to give you chance to breathe. You and your family to delight in God, to worship him in a way that you aren't able to do in the same way during the rest of the week. So a Sabbath day is meant to deal with both duties and delight. I can just say this as having been a pastor now for a long time, it is easy for duty to displace delight. It's easy for duty to displace delight. And so for me, for these three months, pastoral duties have graciously been removed for a time to allow my heart to delight. I desire to choose the good portion who is Jesus. So we've talked a lot about duty. Let's talk a bit about delight. Jesus is the disciples' delight. Look at Mary here. She has delightful distance. The reflexive verb in the Greek shows that she's actually the one that approaches Jesus. She chooses to not follow Martha's escapade, but instead to come to Jesus' feet. She trusts him. She humbles herself before him. And he welcomes her approach. There's no reproach for her. He welcomes her approach. She has delightful distance. She's sitting there at Jesus' feet. And so she is portrayed as the delightful disciple, as a delightful disciple, because she sat. 
she stilled herself. And then she listened to his teaching, hanging on his every word. What had the, the, the duo of disciples said that had whetted her appetite for the things of the kingdom of God? What was the Spirit doing in her? What were the questions that she had? We don't know exactly, but what we do know is she knew where to find those answers, and she knew who was the answer. So she came to sit at Jesus' feet, proving herself to be a disciple. A disciple literally means learner. It means growing in knowledge of the one that you are following. So Mary proved herself to be a disciple by taking that move, making that choice to sit at Jesus' feet. Yet there was not just a student-teacher relationship here. There was love. Because this, Jesus loves all of his disciples, and by the work of the Spirit in them, they love him. This was not an internship. It was not an apprenticeship. It was a relationship graciously established by the Father himself before the foundation of the world. And this was an aha moment for Mary. She was delighting in her Lord. Perhaps all of the questions that she had asked about her own soul, about her own worthiness, She was having them answered right then. Consider the sinful patterns that she undoubtedly knew of. And now she comes to God in the flesh. And he welcomes her. And she can see in his eyes love like she has never known before. You know, we meet Mary and Martha again in John chapter 11. Their brother Lazarus dies. And Jesus, as he's going to their home, has another interaction with both of them. Martha runs out of the house. And the text says, super interesting, Mary stayed seated in the house. She stayed seated. Martha gets up and runs. They're mourning the loss of their brother Lazarus. Martha comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here earlier, he would not have died. Nevertheless, I know that he will rise again on the last day. Do you hear the demand under that? Lord, why weren't you here four days earlier? I know that you knew. Because some of your disciples went and told you. But you didn't come. What is up with that? And now he's dead. The one who you supposedly loved is dead. I know he's going to rise again on the last day. However, if you had been here sooner, he would not have died. To which Jesus... I think similarly to the way that he responds to her in Luke 10, Martha, Martha says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
he who believes in me will live even though he dies. It's calling your heart to not dismiss the distractions, but to have the distractions reorganized in such a way that Jesus was exalted. That his truth and her faith in him would be the crux of their relationship. Not her disappointments or, his demand, or her demands. Continuing in that same episode, Jesus continues on, and then Mary does come out to him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here earlier, he would not have died. The exact same statement. And do you know what Jesus does in response? He weeps. He weeps. I think that's helpful in understanding what is happening in Luke 10. That there was such a connection there. A delight of Mary to Jesus and Jesus to Mary. Not unique to the two of them, but unique to this specific point in time in Martha and Mary's house that displayed a delight, a settled life, a trust and a love that only the Spirit can bring about between a person and his or her Savior. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. What are you anxious and troubled about this morning? Anybody else awake at 3 o'clock this morning? And your mind fills with distractions, with things you're anxious about? I was. I was worried about this sermon. We are, as a people, as a culture, a distracted people. You've seen the movie Up. You know the dog? What distracts the dog? Squirrel. Squirrel. All right. He could be on the most serious mission to take care of what needed to be taken care of, the man and the boy. And all of a sudden, squirrel! And he just loses it. We are distracted people. We have a deep well of distraction that all of us hold very dearly. Some of you are holding it right now. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you're in Luke 10. Here's the thing. We give ourselves willingly to distraction. And then we wonder why our anxieties are through the roof. We have these self-imposed levels of duty, standards for our own behavior or achievement or parenting or husbanding or preaching. 
And if we feel like we're not quite going to make the grade, our flesh is more than eager to make us anxious. Martha, Martha, Andy, Andy, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Notice how he didn't have to say the best portion. He said the good portion, meaning that there is only one good portion. Everything else that we choose to make our portion will distract us from the good portion. So Jesus says, sitting and listening to me is the good portion. Will we listen to him? Our choice is this. We can make portions of our own recipe, our own designs, our own desires, concerns, even publicity, which lead to distraction, worryment, being upset and judgmental of others. Sounds like a good life, huh? Or we can choose the good portion. Jesus himself and his words of eternal life that will not be taken from us. We can be, by God's grace, through the work of his spirit, settled people. We can be loved people. If you're in Christ, you are a loved people. You are a loved person. 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. Where's the anxiousness then? The greatest standard that we have to keep, we have not kept. But Jesus has. He says, come and be united with me through my cross and resurrection. You will be fully loved. You will be fully settled. You will meet the standard through me. And see, a lot of us know that as the gospel. We know that theologically. Our doctrine has been assented. We agree. And we are Christians. Born again, regenerate, going to heaven to experience Jesus forever and ever. But what about now? What about now? Do we continue to live in an affectionate atheism where, yeah, I know, that's going to be so great. Sabbath, sabbatical, eternal sabbatical, what? And we don't actually consider the fact that Jesus is inviting us now to sit at his feet. He's saying, now, as Bill prayed earlier, come and rest. Your souls are weary and heavy laden. I invite you to come to me. No rest now. He is the good portion. And just as Mary did, by the work of the Spirit, we can also choose the good portion. 
Bill mentioned that astronaut last week. In space three times, spacewalked five times. Imagine having him at your house. The questions that you would ask. The uncountable stories that he would have. Imagine being able to say, hey, can you stay for a month? We have so much more to talk about, but eventually that's going to end. The stories will run out. You'll, you'll get to know him, and he's, I mean, he's a good guy, brother in Christ, but he'll probably have some foibles. Imagine what his wife thinks of him. Oh, yeah, astronaut. I know what he's really like. Imagine how difficult it is for him to explain to her what space is like. So there's always a disconnect to a certain extent between what he's experienced and what she has experienced. Well, listen, Jesus is greater than an astronaut. He made those hundred billions of stars. There is eternal reality in him that is inexhaustible. We tend to say, well, I've had my quiet time. It's been a little dry. Let me try some other things to supplement. Or let me just wait until I'm revived again. When Jesus is saying, you want revival? Come closer to me. Repent of the distractions and believe that I am truly your good portion. He's inexhaustible in his character, inexhaustible in his love, inexhaustible in his holiness, inexhaustible in his knowledge of you and me, yet he says, come and sit at my feet. What an invitation. Oh God, give us the grace to choose Jesus more often than we do. For sanctification to look like a growing, growing, growing consideration of who he is. To lead a contemplative life of saying, Jesus, contemplating you, and not just like thinking about Jesus, but thinking about Jesus with Jesus. Let me share you more about myself. Let me share you more about myself. I'd ask that you pray for me and for my family this summer. Pray simply this, that we would choose the good portion. That we would choose the good portion. We are going to be praying for you. And that is going to be my prayer. That you and you and those out there who do not yet know that they are you would choose the good portion. Jesus. What are some ways to think about this doing, or think about doing this in the day to day? Well, um, I'd encourage you to memorize Psalm 16. Jade read it earlier. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. It's going to be hard to not be with you for a summer because, man, I love you. And that's only because Jesus loves you. I delight, I delight to see what he is doing in his church here. Consider memorizing Psalm 16. You could also look at Psalm 139. I won't read that right now, but Psalm 16 or 139. I'll be shooting for 16 first and then maybe for 139 later. Let me give you two book um, recommendations. One is by Mark Buchanan. It's called The Rest of God. Talking about Sabbath, considering Sabbath, you may have always heard Sabbath as kind of like a legalistic thing coming out of the Ten Commandments. This book presents Sabbath with gospel grace, opportunity for putting duty in its right place, and delighting in God. Mark Buchanan, The Rest of God. There's actually a copy in the church library. This is mine, but there's another copy in there if you want it. Second of all is this book, The Incomparable Christ by J. Oswald Sanders. Would you consider reading this this summer? Consider reading this summer. Consider spending some time setting aside your phone or putting an appointment in your phone that you're going to keep with the incomparable Christ. Gaze at him. Revel at him. Enjoy him with him. It's not a study of him. It's a study with him. He's personally involved in generating delight in you. So, some of you are saying, yeah, but I'm Martha. And I have to say, so am I. Well, that's not my real name, but we are, we are most of us in our society, we have some Martha tendencies. And we also appreciate other Marthas that get stuff done. So, how do duty and delight dance? How did duty and delight dance? See, Martha seems to get a bad break here. Haddon Robinson in his sermon on this says, Martha's my kind of woman. She seems to get a bad break here. Mary's obviously affirmed and Martha is questioned. But this is the dance of delight and duty Duty, delight leads, duty follows, and delight continues to lead. Delight, duty, delight. Delight, duty, delight. Delight, duty, delight. See, when duty tries to lead the dance, distraction, demanding, disappointment, and distance quickly follow. That's what was happening to me at 3 a.m. this morning. Legitimately a fear of man, a fear of you guys. Makes no sense, but our flesh oftentimes does not make sense. As you'll read in Psalm 16, the Lord ministers to us at night. 
So don't always think that the 3 o'clock a.m. wake up is just because you ate something the night before that didn't settle well with you. Maybe the Lord is bringing up some things that you're anxious about so that you can repent of your fear of man or repent of your own standards or repent of a lack of delight in him. I can attest personally, it's almost noon now, so this is, th- this is nine hours ago now. I had no rest until the Spirit said, you're fearing the congregation. Why? Trust me. I'm there too. I'm the one that really needs to speak to them. And I repented. And I was able to breathe again. And I fell asleep. Delight dances with duty, dances with delight. Listen to this from John 12. Because you're wondering, where's Martha after this? Jesus heals Lazarus. A a little while later, six days before the Passover, so this, this is coming up to the cross, Jesus comes again to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So... They gave him dinner there. Next clause, Martha served. Martha served. She had seen her Lord heal her brother. When he asked her the question, do you believe this? You better believe she believed it. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The Spirit did an amazing life-giving work in Martha that allowed her duty to work its way down the ladder and for Jesus to be exalted in her. So when he comes again, she serves. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table, and Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Listen, I don't want you to walk away thinking, I just got to be merry. Like, I need to turn my natural um, tendencies or proclivities towards doing into some sort of like, I'm just kind of like the flower on the wall that constantly just worships. And I just want to sit at Jesus' feet. And this is just going to be where I'm at all day, every day. No, that's called being a monk. We're not called to that. What we see here is a redeeming of this family. Where Jesus is exalted, Lazarus is sitting alive at the table. Martha is serving with joy, we would suppose. And Mary comes and brings the ointment to anoint Jesus' feet. All three of them are worshiping. All three of them are unique people living in the same house, welcoming Jesus, but their worship is being transformed. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are the good portion. 
please forgive us for our portions of our own making, the recipes that we seek to eat from every day, the distracted spirits that we too often drink from. Oh, Jesus, would you be exalted in our lives? As you invite your disciples to do, to pray for the Holy Spirit, we ask for the Holy Spirit to further fill us, to remind us, to convict us when we are drinking from dirty wells, when we are seeking our own refreshment from other portions, when you, Jesus, are the only good portion, the Holy Spirit pointing us to you and you in turn reconciling us to the Father. Give us delight in the Trinity, O Trinity, that's beyond what we can make ourselves. And O Lord, I ask this, that as you do this work in this church, that you would send us out. I don't know if that means 72 but Lord, you have given us places and people that we are around every single day. Oh, would your delight so capture us that we would rejoice in the Holy Spirit because we are able to participate with you in, in sharing, proclaiming the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. So we thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you that you're interceding even now. So we ask you, Jesus, to do these things, Lord, not for our glory, but for yours alone. In your wonderful name we pray.